0: Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron.
1: And I am Cherry Gregg. The Mooter Museum of Philadelphia is under new leadership that wants to bring some change to the Medical History Museum. Now, this place is known for its slightly ghoulish collection of skulls, pathological specimens, and primitive medical instruments. And it's caused an uproar, Avi, from some museum fans and former staff. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk with the executive director, Kate Quinn, about the criticism and how the museum is rethinking how it displays human remains.
0: And this gets at bigger questions. Yes. About museums in the 21st century. We invite your comments and questions. Our number, you know it, is 888-477-9499. Hop on the line now. You can also email studio2 at WHYY.org. Later in the hour... Pockets. 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 <laughs> uh, we take them for granted. We do. I got five of them today, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we get pockets, Cherry? And what do they say about power, privacy, and gender? There's a lot more there than you might think. And we're going to talk with the author of a new book all about the subject of pockets. Before we get to all that, Cherry, what do we do? Yeah, we dig
1: in. We dig To in. the news. Let's dig into the news. <laughs> For sure. Um, first up, n- there is a brand new U.S. News and World Report college ranking that came out this week. It's the first one after a major overhaul of the algorithm that ranks the nation's college institutions. Now, it sent some private institutions plummeting down the <laughs> list. Boom! I won't say <laughs> I won't do the crash, <laughs> but it also pushed about a dozen public institutions up the rankings, <laughs> some about fifty spaces. But the tippy tippy top with Princeton ranked number one, MIT number two in Harvard and Sanford number three well that didn't change some local institutions that moved up Temple University even with all their issues we talked about last yes. week Avi they are now in the top 100 resting at number 89. Rutgers Camden also broke into the top 100. They're 98. And Rutgers New Brunswick bumped all the way up to number 40.
0: Big week for the Scarlet.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So what changed? Well, under the new algorithm, the emphasis was on graduation rates for lower income students. There were also some metrics for first gen students and earnings
0: of recent grads. What was removed?
1: alumni giving
0: among other things the idea being right that you shouldn't rank colleges well some people think you shouldn't rank colleges at all let's put that aside for a second because that's an interesting debate but if you're going to rank colleges you shouldn't rank them based on the inputs but more on the outputs Mm -hmm. so you shouldn't say this is the best college because they accept the students with the highest sat scores or grades which often by the way correlate highly with income um, the idea is not to accept the highest caliber student; it's to provide. Because they're going to have a good outcome, yeah. Right, because it's to provide the most social mobility, and that's what the, the. Well, first of all, that's what they say they're now focusing mm. more on, and the proof seems to be in this in the uh, the rankings that a lot of public universities moved up. Some schools, private schools specifically, like Villanova, uh-huh. moved down. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. this And this was responding to big-time criticism yeah. of those rankings. So within our era, you're seeing schools move up and down a lot. I would imagine now it's going to stabilize mm-hmm. a bit because they said this was the biggest change that they had made to the formula in like 40 years. Yeah. So they're probably not going to make another big change for a while, but um, – you can see now, you know, Temple firmly ensconced in the yeah. top 100. Yep. Pretty cool, uh, especially
1: after they're dealing with, got to shout out Delaware State University, the only HBCU in, our, in Delaware and in our region that made it to the top 10 HBCU
0: list. I and mean, they were what? Num- number three, you said? They're number three. Number three among HBCUs. Yes. Wow. Pretty good. And they're
1: in our region. So Stand up, Dover.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so we wanted to acknowledge um, mm. within the education world um, the passing yeah. Of a Titan. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia's first black and female school superintendent, Constance Clayton, passed away yesterday yeah. at the age of 89. She served as superintendent from 1982 until her retirement in 1993. She's from Philly, yeah. grew up in Philly, began her journey through the school system professionally as mm-hmm. a fourth grade teacher in North Philadelphia and um, was really thought of with with great reverence. From folks that you spoke with in and outside of the system, had a long tenure as the leader of the schools. Uh, And again, she passed away yesterday at the age of 89.
1: Yeah, I first of all, condolences to her entire family and those who loved her. I mean, um, she was a girls high grad. Mm -hmm. Um, She made sure black history was being taught in the schools. And we have that conversation going on right now and mentored so many of the superintendents that came after her. So lots of kind words, even from Dr. Tony Watlington, who was on the show recently. Um, He said she was a mentor and friend and a true educator and humanitarian. Um, And, you know, you and I talked about this, and I know you're going to, but, I mean, there was a time of peace. And anybody I talk to who's from Philly talks about the constant Clayton years as like this idyllic time in Philadelphia education that everybody wants to get back to.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I covered the school system well after she had left and I never had a chance to get to know her. But people talked about Mm -hmm. her all the time. And part of it was her. Right. Yeah. They were drawn to her personality, what she achieved. But part of it was also, I think, like you said, it was this little moment of peace in between two very turbulent periods. If people might remember from about, I think, 1970 to 1981, Very turbulent time in the Philadelphia school system. Six different teacher strikes just in those 11 years. Wow. Constant budget battles and budget problems. And that was happening in a lot of cities. White flight, deindustrialization. There were budget battles in lots of school systems. Philadelphia was not immune. Um, Then you have the Constance Clayton period. And then after that, really right after she left, you have the beginning of uh, the charter school period, major shakeups in governance and structure and population enrollment numbers um, that, led takeovers. To, that, that led to more budget battles yeah. and state takeovers. So when I, when you would hear people talk about Constance Clayton in the context, uh, it was really like, hey, there was this moment maybe not so long ago where things seemed stable yeah. and kind of going and in the right direction. things worked. Yeah. Within the school district of Philadelphia. That's not a put down of charters, by the way. I'm just saying the, the growth of charter certainly affected the school district as an entity, and a lot of people pined for those days. In between, yeah. when Constance Clayton was the, was the superintendent.
1: Yeah, rest in peace, Constance Clayton. Um, uh, we want to pivot now to the um, the dress code in the, in the U.S. Senate is um, this pockets related? This is kind of leading into pockets, <laughs> I guess. You may be seeing more cargo pants and short sleeve shirts on the Senate floor. The reason for all of this is Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman. Uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said this week that staff for the chamber sergeant-at-arms, the Senate's closed police, will no longer enforce a dress code. If you recall, Avi, uh, Senator Fetterman used to vote from the door with one foot out, mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. the chamber because he wanted to wear his sweatshirt and his shorts and sneakers um, to the chamber. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans in the GOP pushed back against it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, now this... He's changed things. Your thoughts on that?
0: Well, my thoughts were I didn't even realize there was a dress code until. Yeah, it's
1: not a rule. It was more like a custom that was in place. Yeah, it was a custom exactly. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So he's breaking the custom, not the rule. Um, I guess I am okay with it, and if people aren't okay with it, they could just vote him out of office, right? Isn't that how democracy works? Although it did make me think, where is the line? Is there a line? That is, do you think there should be some minimum? Like, what if you were in like uh, flip flops mm-hmm. and board shorts and like no shirt? Would that be OK on the Senate floor? Um, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, I want my elected officials to
1: kind of look
0: like elected officials. <laughs> oh, really? But, um, but you know, that. I yeah. know,
1: I know, I know. But I'm not I'm not a hater yeah, and yeah. I understand, you know, people have to be. You are
0: well-dressed, by the way.
1: You know, so <laughs> I'm maybe, not saying you have to wear like suits and ties.
0: Put it like this. I'm the John Fetterman <laughs> of, of our duo. I don't look that good. You look great always. So maybe you're just trying to, to but justify. Not, I'm not going to
1: hate on okay. him. And I'm, and I'm glad that things are changing. So uh, okay.
0: Go. Speaking of change, mm-hmm. a lot of changes in the way we communicate. Over the last yeah. 30, 40 years, uh, including a lot of us use emojis. Sherry, mm-hmm. what's your favorite emoji? The
1: big eyes that just look. use <laughs> that <I laughs> really? like at least five times a day. Why? Yeah. Um, Just to let
0: people know, oh, I'm
1: checking it out. What do you think? <laughs> you know, like little eyes peering That's over the table. a very journalist
0: <laughs> response. <laughs> so there you go. You're always looking. <laughs> yes. Um, so, by the way, mm-hmm. did you know, on this day 41 oh. years ago, a man in Pittsburgh started the Emoji Revolution, revolution. September 19th. Some computer scientists at Carnegie Mellon were messing around on a message board, like a primordial version of social media. And there was this string of jokes that ended with a person writing a sarcastic safety warning about an elevator at Carnegie Mellon contaminated with mercury. Ha ha. Not yeah. really. Some folks thought this person was serious. And so um, a computer scientist named Scott Fallman made a suggestion. He proposed that whenever people meant something as a joke, they should begin the message with a colon dash dash parenthesis, which, as we now know, makes Mm -hmm. the shape of a sideways smiley face. This was the first recorded use of an emoticon, the predecessor to emojis. And I spoke to Scott earlier about his groundbreaking yet unintended invention.
2: A lot of things were suggested, but it occurred to me that a smiling face would be sort of universally understood as, you know, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it's it's a joke. Mm-hmm. In those days, we had no ability to do things like emojis uh, with bitmaps.
0: And so colon, dash, or minus sign, parenthesis, yes. that was to signify that everything in this chunk of text is meant in a humorous light.
2: Yeah, you put it in the subject line, and it says this, this whole thing is a joke. And then and immediately
0: you, you seized uh, on the opposite, right? If you flip the parenthesis, make it a, a frowny face, then that gives the opposite implication to everything that yes, follows. I'm I'm
2: really serious. This is uh, there really is mercury contamination.
0: <laughs> right, right.
2: And immediately people started using them for I'm generally happy about what you said, or I'm generally sad. So this became a little code we used within the community.
0: How did it get outside the community? Because as you mentioned, at this point, the community is small, and you defined your community as nerds. Your language, not mine. Um, right. <laughs> How did it escape nerddom into a popular culture? So as soon
2: as a new uh, university joined the network, uh, people would send a hello message to their friends. And some of those messages had the smiley face. And it started uh, spreading uh, through the whole community. There was then a link to the UK. There was a link to Japan. There was a link to Europe.
0: At what point did you realize hey, this is going to be a big part of my legacy in the computing world, even though you've spent decades doing research on all manner of things, artificial (laughs) intelligence and the like. At what point did you realize, wait a second, me being the first mover on emoticons slash emojis is going to be, you know, line one of my legacy somewhere in there?
2: I guess sometime in the 1990s when it spread to the general public, as long as it was just, Nerd speak. There were a lot of other people who invented bits of nerd speak that were popular for a while and went away. Like what? Well, LOL has come and gone a few times. Mm -hmm. There's a whole file, hackers dictionary. It's called. You can you can look it up online, which was some of the nerd speak used in the community then that spread through the other universities.
0: As you mentioned, your original intent with this was to basically set an emotional expectation for the entire message. Like the words coming up here, they're meant to be serious. They're meant to be jokey. People use emoticons and emojis a little differently now. Um, I don't think it's quite that type of intent as it morphed and changed and evolved. Did you ever like get grumpy about it and think, wait a second, you guys are using it wrong or was it, (laughs) Hey, Hey, live and let live.
2: Well, uh, Pretty quickly, it spread to not just being in the subject line, but being at the end of a sentence, you know, when you just said something clever, but it doesn't refer to the whole message.
0: And you were cool with that? Uh, or were you resentful of the change? Sure,
2: sure, that happened. And then people started making variations within about a month. You you can make lots of little pictures with lines of punctuation. So people started playing with that and having fun. And that's great. I'm I'm cool with that. One thing that kind of irritated me was when suddenly cell phones became popular, people dropped the noses.
0: Why did that irritate you?
2: Well, I think it looks better with the nose. I call the other ones frog
0: smileys. (laughs) So you're obviously the inventor, but at this point, you probably also have to be a philosopher about this entire concept. So why do you think it has such staying power?
2: You know, we need an easy way to say, hey, nudge, nudge, I'm kidding. And then the next thing is... Smiles, smiles are universal. We didn't have to say, hey, this is a smiling face, you know, people would, uh, most people would get that, uh, even if they hadn't seen them before. And every culture does a smile in the same way. There's no, no known human culture in which you turn your face the other way when you're happy.
0: And the internet being this universal, you know, system of connectivity universal symbols have a lot of power.
2: Yeah, so it was able to spread around the world and go to places where they used Cyrillic alphabets as long as they had access to an English alphabet. It was able to go to places where uh, they have very different sense of humor, but still there's something that's funny and something that's not. You know, and I think smiles are powerful, you know. A smile a smile at some random person on the street. Maybe they have a little bit better day.
0: All right, Scott, I want to get you out of here on this question. Um, (laughs) There was a a Philly folk singer named Tom Glazer, who did a lot of important things in the the folk music world. But later in his life, he happened to pen the song on top of spaghetti and it became a huge hit and it became the first line of his obituary. And he totally resented it um, because he felt it totally overshadowed everything else he'd done. Do you have that relationship with emoticons slash emojis or are you at peace with your contribution here?
2: It's It's been a fun ride. You know, I've gone to a lot of interesting places to give talks on this. You know, every once in a while, somebody finds out I'm that guy and is impressed. You know, it's been fun. And uh, it, it creates a challenge. You know, I've spent the rest of my career trying to come up with something in AI that's as universal and important as, as the smiley face was. But if I never make that, that's okay.
1: Well that definitely put a smile on my face. Ooh. I know. <laughs> I mean that was I don't know that's a real world emoji that you
0: just <laughs> did with your finger. It's called actually smiling, yeah.
1: Yeah, that was Scott Foulman, Professor Emeritus at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, whose actions 41 years ago
0: today spurred the emoji revolution. Coming up, we are talking about changes at the Mooner Museum. We already have some emails coming in to studio2 at whyy.org and callers standing by. That number is 888 477
3: 9499. It rolled off the table.
0: Supporting WHYY Pen Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Pen Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicine.org/cancer. Pen Medicine, what's next? And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron.
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Many people in our region have visited Philadelphia's Mütter Museum, the medical history museum filled with skeletons, pathological specimens, wax models, and antiquated instruments. The original collection was donated by Dr. Thomas Dent Mütter in 1858 to be used for medical education. But recently, the Mütter sparked controversy when new leadership said it was re-examining the collection and how it's being displayed.
0: Earlier this year some online exhibits disappeared from the Mooter website temporarily. Visitors and some former museum staff then worried that the museum would lose its original character defined by frank and sometimes macabre displays of death disease and the human form. Then there was a blowback to the blowback with
1: experts saying the mooter should re-examine itself Like many museums, the mooter is grappling with questions about how to treat human remains, how those remains were originally acquired, and what respect it owes to the people on display. This tension is what Executive Director Kate Quinn is wrestling with. She joins us now to talk about the balancing act between ethics and the museum's essence. Kate, welcome to Studio 2. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.
0: And we want to hear from you. If you visited the Mooder, what did you think? What was your experience like? Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at WHYY.org.
1: So Kay, it's been about a year since the big announcement that the Mooder had hired you as the first executive director since its founding in 1863. You came there with considerable experience. What were some of the unique opportunities and challenges that you saw coming into this museum that attracted you to this position?
4: Well, I'm a Philly girl. I grew up in the area, and the Motor has been one of my favorite museums since the first time I visited, when I was about 15. it's incredible. It's one of the only collections of its kind. It's one of the only museums of its kind in the world. So who wouldn't jump at an opportunity to be able to take it through to its next chapter? Um, I was very interested in it from the, from the get-go and excited to be there. So unique opportunities and
1: challenges that
4: absolutely, you saw. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, you know, anyone who's paying attention to um, museum work, and I don't expect everyone is, but um, the issues that come across globally when it comes to collections and collecting practices are at the forefront of our field today. Um, How did these collections come to uh, be in the museums that they're in? How are they being interpreted? And what is right in today's world, which is very, very different than even five years ago in the world? So they're really uh, challenging, but very, very incredible opportunities to, to take a look at our future together.
0: When you were hired, did you know that you would be undertaking a review like this? Was there a mandate to look through the collection with an eye toward you know, the ethics of, of today? Or was that something that, that you decided to do when you got in the role?
4: It's something that all museums are doing. And so I can't say it was a specific mandate, but it was something that um, the board and leadership of the college were interested in exploring, um, as you probably know. But those who don't, I, I spent about 14 years at the Penn Museum, um, so very well acquainted with issues when it comes to historical human remains and what, what to think about, what to um, what to bring in voices to, uh, to help you to think through collectively. Um, so I had some sense that, sure, this is going to be something we will deal. With within my tenure, um, it came uh, in a very different way and came very quickly. Um, I didn't expect it in the first year, and certainly not as as quick as it came about. But I see it as an opportunity. The conversations have to happen. That's what's going on in the world today. So, so here it is, and let's have the conversations.
0: Can we establish and sort of maybe sort fact mm-hmm. from fiction here? What is it that you guys are doing right now? What is the process that you are undergoing, and what is the timeline for that process?
4: Sure. Um, so. We just got this grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and we planned on this project um, about a year ago. I wasn't here all that long as we started to plan for um, an, a really robust uh, community engagement process to bring the public in, to bring in stakeholders, to have conversations about the consent, about the respect, about the collection. How did it get here? Why, why do we have these materials? Who Who acquired them? Um, the materials didn't come direct to the museum. They had to come through someone or someones before they arrived. Who are those people? Um, What I learned pretty quickly is that we have not done, unfortunately a comprehensive audit of the collection um, in 80 years, and that's not typical with museums. And so the first thing that we're doing is to better understand what we have in our collection so that we know who to bring in and who to have conversations with. So we're about 10% into an audit, a comprehensive audit of the collection, learning more about the history of the specimens, for the first time really coupling the uh, archives and the library collection that that give more indication about who these individuals may have been. Um, So that process is happening now and will continue forward. Thank <laughs> you. Um, And then the second part of it is to bring in the public and various stakeholders um, for targeted conversations. So we've started focus groups already, um, but to have public discussions. So there's a town hall that's coming up, the first one, um, October 17th. Beyond that, um, we'll have workshops and an exhibition that's meant for feedback that you can come in and we'll tell you stories about the history of the collection. How do these specimens get here? And leave it to you to understand in your own perspective, it may not have been illegal when the materials were collected in the 19th century but it's not typically considered ethical today how we got these materials so the question is what do we do now um, it's a really difficult position to be in and we're seeking as much feedback as we can get
1: and um, I want to bring in a caller who uh, is on the line um, since we're talking about bringing public comment and we have Dia who is an organizer with Protect the Mooter. Dia you're on studio too right. what's your question or comment here
3: so uh, first, thank you for taking my call. Uh, secondly, I'm we're very confused when Kate Quinn says that she welcomes public feedback because there's been an outpouring of public feedback. Uh, we have over 34,000 signatures on our online campaign petition uh, calling for the dismissal of Kate Quinn as well as Dr. Irons uh, and for the uh, emails and calls and messages and comments the exodus of staff, there has been a deluge of public feedback that didn't require uh, $285,000 from Pew grants. And so when the leadership says that they want to be transparent and that they want to be accessible and that they welcome public feedback, everything that they have done mm. is contrary to that. Do day you, day. Do you, can I ask you, I mean,
0: what do you see as the, the major transgression at this point that, that you think, you know, would make it so that that removal yeah should be removed like what do you see as as the major issue
3: sure so it's the secrecy and the lack of transparency and accountability so for instance the online material that was taken down was taken down without any sort of uh discussion or announcement and the reactions to it happened and then there was a reaction from the leadership saying oh you all noticed that we took down everything uh, yes we took everything down and then there was the furniture that was secretly donated and then when it was caught then there was a statement and then there was memento Mutter which was taken down and then it was caught and then there was a statement
1: and, so, and, and so we're going a lack of a transparency, transparency. And, like. and let's and, and let's stop it there and, and uh, kind uh, of like give kate, kate and, an opportunity Thank you so much uh, for respond. that call. Thank Gia, you so by much Dia. Yeah. and, and I want to Give an opportunity to UK Kate, to um, speak, you know, first of all, the I know that there was a lot of discussion about what was online, those online materials that were taken down. Um, was this communicate, what type of communication went out to the public about this and why were those taken down and what's the status of that?
4: Uh, so the review is finished. So all of the videos, um, we promised that we'd be back up. Uh, those that we saw as appropriate to go back up would be back up by Labor Day and they're back up now. Um, when we went back into uh, taking a look, we, there had been an article that came out in ProPublica um, followed by um, an article that was local at the Inquirer uh, talking about our uh, connection with NAGPRA and compliance with NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Repatriation Act. Um, within those that federal law, there is um, some there were some questions that came our way about whether or not we had been um, in compliance and had as many um, returns as we were required to do. So for me, that was something that initially started Started the thinking about uh, taking a look at what we're doing and how we are moving forward with respect and dignity to the remains that are in our collection. That caused us to take a look at any um, human remains that were presented online. Um, we don't have consent um, at this point in time. The audit's going to give us a little bit more, info- a lot more information. Um, but we know at present there's about 6,600 remains in the, in the museum. And what I was starting to learn at this point, and through NagPro, we were starting to learn a bit more, because I'd only been there uh, gosh, three or four months at that point in time. Um, only about 10, 10 individuals of 6,600 gave explicit consent to be on display mm-hmm. in the museum. So that certainly caused alarm for me. Um, If it was your ancestor or my ancestor, uh, we do know that the history of medical uh, practice is not equitable. Uh, We know that the majority of the remains have to come from marginalized communities because people who had wealth tended to be buried (laughs) and had their materials Mm -hmm. staying together. Um, So we were looking at that.
1: And I have a quick follow sure. up because I think the issue of consent um, raised a couple of questions in my mind. Um, what does consent mean? Yeah. And give me the spectrum because I would assume there's explicit consent, quasi consent, and then just people who had no idea that they were how they're you know, remains will be used. Can you give us the spectrum and what it means as far as the Muda collection?
4: Yeah, so I would start with those who gave explicit consent. And those are people whose individual, who as an individual, knew that they were not only giving to their, of their body or body part to the museum and to be on display for educational purposes. And that's 10 people. That is about 10 people Mm -hmm. um, so far that we know on the very opposite side of it, we know of hundreds of people who did not give consent or have implied nonconsent and then there's everything in between and that 's mm-hmm. going to take some time and, and it 's going to be almost impossible for us to find the histories of every specimen within the collection, but we have an obligation to those individuals who are here and who are in our
0: care to try but is there so so if these specimens and if these remains were collected in an era before there really was this truly fleshed out idea of consent. Is there any way to square that with a modern collection? Because then it, it almost, I hear that and I almost wonder, well, can you display anything that was collected more than a hundred years ago, more than 50 years ago? And, and if you don't do that, then you are, you know, you're making it so that we can't learn about things that happened sort of before our modern sensibilities were formed. And, and that's creates its own tension. So is there a way to display remains that were, you know, collected before we really had this idea of consent that had formed? Yeah.
4: That's what we're going to
0: talk about, and <laughs> that's what post-mortem is all
4: about, I think, is to go forward and have these opportunities to discuss these very, very difficult questions with um, with our communities and with our stakeholders. Most museums who have human remains do not have them on display, um, and you're not seeing them presented online. Um, we're one of the only in this country who have um, materials on display um, explicitly from those who we don't have consent from. Um, I do think, you know, the museum will continue. That's exactly what I'm in this role to do is to move it forward, but to move it forward in a way in which we are paying respect to those remains that are in our collection and in our care. If you were grave robbed, if your body was stolen from a war ground, from a hospital, if you had to bargain with a doctor to give them your, your corpse, so that they would treat you in life and you were a Christian or if there was some kind of connection that we understand that perhaps you you were never meant to come out of the ground. And you're saying you most to museums
0: be, do not they do put not. those types of bodies on display. No, they do not. So the Mütter, you, you believe, has historically been an outlier in that regard.
4: We're pretty rare and that's okay. what I think makes it special for so many people. Um,
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and if you are just tuning in, we we're speaking with Kate Quinn, executive director of the Mütter Museum here in Philadelphia. The institution is currently grappling with questions about how to treat human remains. It, we want to hear from you. You can email studio2 at WHYY.org. You can also call one 477 9499 Again, the number 888-477-9499. Kate, a lot of people have very like strong emotions about this. I mean, we have a tweet from Fairmount resident who says those human remains are the only reason people visit the mooter. It seems that the museum is willing to commit institutional suicide to align itself with trendy progressiveness. And then on the other side, we have an email from JVK who says as a disabled fat person, I believe the mooter has a responsibility to repatriate remains and redesign their museum, whether or not fans. And previous staff want to admit it. The museum is a modern day freak show, which removes agency from historically marginalized peoples in Philadelphia. We deserve more for our museums. Museums are not neutral. So how are you handling this? And I know that there was a few years ago in the late 90s where there was a controversy when that calendar was launched with uh, pictures of human remains on it. There was a big controversy surrounding the mooter at that time. What did you did you look back at that? How are you? How is the museum sort of like dealing with these very strong opinions, with a op- very strong opposing opinions? Should I say?
4: It's not been easy. I will say this is something that is very personal to a lot of people. And there are folks here in Philadelphia, and again, being a person from Philadelphia, there's passion here about this place. And that, as far as a museum is concerned, that's what you're looking for. You want to make sure that, you know, people feel ownership over your institutions. They're held in the public trust. And so that is something that I I pay close attention to and I'm really excited about for our future. Um, But it's been something that we have to walk a line. We have to walk a very thin line with this uh, in some ways. Um, the ethics today are different than what they were in the past, and um, we're going to work through this all together. Something to keep in mind is that the Mutter Museum is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. We are an under the umbrella of the college. The college is uh, a fellowship society for physicians, and the mission of the College of Physicians is and has been for many decades to advance the cause of health while upholding the ideals and heritage. Of medicine, and so one of the things that we're looking into is: Are we doing that? Is the motor doing that today? That's our mission. That's what it always has been. The museum, as you know it today, was was built to look as it does in 1986. It doesn't. That's not what it looked like when it first came on board. There were cases that were similar, but you're talking about
0: that Victorian feel. The Victorian
4: feel was one that was put in place intentionally in 1986 to make you feel as though you were walking into a 19th century. Um, experience Mm -hmm. and they were successful with it there's nothing at all to say that they weren't but the public was not coming in droves until that point we had some public here and there but the college was founded to educate medical practitioners and students and that had been the main drive of it for over a century until 1986 when a concerted effort was made to bring the public in and bringing the public in also meant to revitalize and to renovate the
0: museum And by bringing the public in, though, you also created a space that people have a deep attachment to, Mm -hmm. um, and and many self-described goths, and I'm not using this term, I'm I'm saying this is a group of people self-described as goths, see this as a unique museum for them where they fit in, it's a place for outsiders, and then they feel you're trying to drive them away. You don't want them as the clientele. You don't want people who view the museum experience that way to be the core audience. Is there a type of experience you do not want people to have at the museum. A
4: type of experience I do not want people to have, is or not- a
0: takeaway you don't want them to have.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that I want people to walk away certainly with a deeper level of understanding and respect for the bodies that are on display there, whatever they may be. Um, we don't have a lot of context around specific specimens. You're not getting the stories, the human stories, mm-hmm. uh, as consistently as could be. The power in what we can do in the depth of storytelling to hit the mark for um, for society today. What what are the medical issues that everyone is dealing with, or people are dealing with it, we could help you better understand through the work of the College of Physicians and by by part the the Motor Museum. That's what I want people to walk away with, and I think we can do a lot better job than we're currently doing with that. And I would love for that to be everyone who loves the motor to come along with us in that journey. We just want to make it stronger. We want to make it more applicable to your daily life as we move forward together. So I would hope that everyone um, can hear that and to understand that um, respect and dignity is the heart of what we're doing and will continue to do.
1: Yeah, and I, and I will say that, uh, will it ever be okay, though, because for some people, they're going to always have an issue with the display of human remains. Um, and it, some of them, are, uh, both Avi and I were able to visit the museum recently. Um, there was a brisk presence of people coming through. And this, I went on a random Monday, uh, just before lunch. Lots of people there. So will it ever be okay? I mean, this is something some sometimes this things are going to always make people feel uncomfortable. Would it be okay if some people are just uncomfortable just because of the subject matter?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think history can be uncomfortable, and I think you lean into that history, and that's something that um, we can help folks along that journey to understand. You know, we had a focus group that came through um, just about three months ago, and it was with a group of individuals from the Mantua community who were predominantly African American. Um, they're our neighbors, our closest neighbors. They're mm-hmm. within our community. They didn't know what the museum was. Above board, they they didn't understand that this museum had human remains in it, and they were very upset collectively yeah. coming into that institution and seeing dead bodies, to them that was very disrespectful. So how do we move forward together in a way that um, they deserve to learn just as much as people who identify as being goths, as much as people who are disabled. The disabled community is very split on what they believe about mm-hmm. the murder as well. And so um, it, it's a very um, difficult subject. But one, you know, this legacy that we inherited, this legacy that we're going to move forward with, we have an obligation to do so in every way possible with as many people on board as we can. Um, But some people will always be uncomfortable with this. It's our obligation, it's our duty to bring them along and and give them as much information as possible about the experience and context about what it is that they're seeing. I wanna
0: bring in an email from Heather. You talked about people who, who might always feel uncomfortable. Heather says, I toured the Mütter Museum years ago. I am a nurse and a Catholic Christian. I got a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. It was fascinating, but does not feel like a proper way to treat human bodies. On the flip side, Dante, I visited last year and loved the museum, found it very informative, and I felt like they were respectful of the collection. For example, you can't take photographs, so there are some guardrails already in place. You talked about trying to make this determination about your collection once you do the audit, and I still feel like I don't have a good sense of what you're you're aiming for, like what checkboxes need to be checked for any one specimen to be okay for display. Like, I know you're saying you're still getting feedback on that, but can you give us some sense as we wrap up here with a minute left what that basic target looks like?
4: I wish I could say that it's an easy thing, but it's actually going to have to be specimen by specimen. Um, we're going to have to take a look at that individual specimen, its records, and what we can ascertain. I do think we're going to have, for lack of better term, buckets of people who absolutely did not want to be here, did not did not give consent to be on display, did not give consent to be in a museum. There will be questions about what it means if a body was given for research. Mm-hmm. Are you are you researching when you're in a museum in a public sphere? Um what about education? Are we an educational institution in the way that the donor may have believed their body would have been used? So it's very, very complicated. And that's why we're just at the start of this. And um, I wish there was some way to say that this is exactly where we're headed. What we know we need is a lot more information. And we're starting to do that process. And as we learn more, we're bringing more people into the process. Communities can and should be engaged with this process as we're moving forward to understand what the next steps would be. Um, If people were taken from their graves and and ancestors are looking to have those individuals reinterred that's also our obligation but we need to give you information to know how to move forward with that
0: that's Kate Quinn executive director of the Mütter Museum Kate thank you for joining us fielding uh, comments and questions from our audience we do appreciate it thank you yes thank you so
1: much coming up next we're talking about the history of pockets big shift there they may be small but their evolution raises big questions about gender power and privacy Stick with us. Lots to discuss right here on Studio 2.
0: Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicineorg slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. My name is Avi Wolfman, Aaron, and I have a challenge for you. Wherever you're listening right now, your (laughs) car, your desk, your work, take a second and ask yourself, how many pockets are on my clothes? And what do you have in those pockets? I'd mentioned I have five pockets today. Yeah. Ooh, you don't want to know what's in some of those pockets, I'm (laughs) sure.
1: my pockets? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. You're fine. You're fine. (laughs) We rely on our pockets to carry a lot our phone, spare change, a tissue. But how did they get there in the first place? We talked with Hannah Carlson, who asked that same question and found that the history of pockets reveal a lot about our ideas of power, privacy and gender. Did you know that, Avi? Well, her new book is Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close.
0: So, Hannah, a light bulb went off for me as I opened this book and I realized that I always leave the house with three things in my pockets. Cell phone, keys. Wallet. And if I don't have any one of those three things specifically in my pockets, I feel out of balance. And it made me realize pockets are super duper important. What was the light bulb moment for you? I mean, I
5: think it was almost that exact same thought, except in reverse when I found myself on the street during an office fire drill. And I thought, oh my God, I can't do anything. I can't make a call. I can't go buy a cup of coffee. I wore this ridiculous outfit today, and I have not a single pocket. Everything I need is in my bag, you know, draped over a chair. And even though I didn't have any pockets, I did that, you know, patting yourself down gesture. And that gesture sort of made me think, oh, how come women's clothing so often falls down on the job? Uh, And then then the next question was, well, what is a pocket anyway? They're like the odd man out in, uh, in clothing, in all the functional things that you wear, you know, your zipper, buttons, collars, cuffs, belt loops, everything helps you get dressed, put on your clothes, tighten them, adjust them. And I don't know, pockets are like along for the ride.
1: You know, it's funny. I rarely, really gave much thought about pockets, but oh, how excited I would get when I bought a jumpsuit or a dress that had pockets. And I just wonder how we got along without them. So, Hannah, can you rewind back? What did folks really rely on before Pockets, and when and how did Pockets first change the game?
5: Well, we've just had bags forever, for millennia. and People have been perfectly fine without Pockets. But I think that this sort of nifty contrivance of having this permanently stitched bag in your clothes just sort of took off 500 years ago when we first get tailored clothing. Once we started making clothes that fit the contours of our body, we had like hems and seams where we could stick in a nice little pouch. And then people fell in love with them, I think.
0: Yeah, you say about 500 years ago. What was changing around that time that made it possible for people to create this kind of tailored clothing?
5: I think it was really sort of improvised. Around like 1550 or so, uh, men wore big trunkos. They look like Bloomers or something. And I think tailors just said, you know, I'm trying to imitate a tailor here. Oh my God, instead of (laughs) stuffing this by your waist, let me stick it inside your pants. And the early pockets are kind of strange. Like we would think of them as sort of improvised. They look more like drawstring bags, like they hang from the waistband. They might be 20 inches long. They were made of leather. Tailors itemized them separately in their bills. So they were like a newfangled, fun thing. And they kind of look more like a bag than a pocket.
1: What did pockets say about you? Because I mean, could pockets say that you had more money, that they emote a class. What did pockets in the early part of the technology as it was evolving and created, what did it say?
5: Well, I think that's sort of the interesting thing because it's the purse that says everything about status and class. And men and women alike in the medieval era wore really gorgeous purses. And the pocket is strange because the pocket is private space, and you don't know who's wearing a pocket. You know, they were sort of, I think, received as this, like, quasi-extension of the person. You could even have concealed weapons, and it was threatening space, even.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, Prince William of Orange, I believe, was assassinated by someone in 1584 who had a wheel-lock pistol that they drew from their pocket. It seems like the ruling classes did see pockets as potentially threatening. Is that right?
5: Yeah. Queen Elizabeth I is up in arms. People are, you know, moving around the kingdom with concealed weapons. And she had lots of edicts that tried to limit their use. And that assassination that I mentioned is sort of fascinating because in the Elizabethan era, everybody's armed and they walk around with uh, swords and daggers and everything. But those weapons were visible. The freaky thing was that suddenly you could have the newest of handguns that could be now small so it could fit in a pocket. Uh, And during that assassination, the killer walked up to the prince and it was as though he was handing him a letter. And instead, he pulled out this gun and shot him at close range.
1: And so pockets became political. Avi and I were talking about the politics of pockets because... If you fast forward during times of slavery in America, um, when clothes were made for the enslaved, they didn't want them to have pockets. And yet if you were a free person, you needed a pocket because you had to have your papers which proved that you were free. Well,
5: yeah, and that I think is just so strange to us to think about. But in the 17th and 18th century, all clothes are made by hand. Uh, So there's this huge variation in how clothes looked. Uh, You could really see status from afar. And so not all suits had pockets or coats. And you see this noted in the runaway advertisements that were posted by enslavers who who sought the return of their servants and slaves. And pockets, whether they were on the coat or not, was something that was noted in these advertisements. It seems that on the eve of running away, a number of Enslaved people added pockets, sewed them onto their coats, added pocket flaps in order to look and to pass yourself off as free. Like when you got to a major metropolitan city, um, you wanted to look the part and have a coat that had all its parts like pockets and pocket
1: flaps. You know, you wanted to wear distinguished garb. Yeah. You could say a lot without saying anything just by the presence of your pockets. And it leads me to the question of gender. Like Avi and I walked in today. (laughs) Avi has like six pockets. I got six six pockets. Six pockets. I have two pockets. Can we talk about the gender differences in who had pockets and who couldn't have pockets and why?
5: Around 1800, when fashion becomes really narrow, there are two things going on. One, sort of a different history of manufacture in terms of sort of gendered clothing, and two is attitude. So in terms of the manufacture, you've got the suit, which is like this uniform, and pockets you know, begin in the 1666 when you get your first suit, and they are, you never lose them, they never, they never disappear. It's a standard thing. Whereas for women's dress, until 1920, you couldn't go and buy a dress off the rack. And during that time, they were never standard. It was never part of the idea. It was always like, well, we'll add it if we can. I and mean, I think it suggests that material objects reveal so much about the social world. All these things we don't really want to say out loud, like women are for beauty and appearance and men need clothes for utility. We, we don't really say that, but then we do it.
1: I have to say, in preparing for this book, I did not realize that there was this growing movement online, like in places like TikTok, calling uh, for more pockets and and less gendered clothing, especially when you talk about, I say pocket technology. It's like a fa- a piece of technology that's built into your clothing. Do you think we're at a space where things could shift, though, just because there is this renewed push? I mean, I hope so.
5: If you look at sportswear and 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 clothes like that, it's wonderfully pocketed for both sexes for any sex. You get to work clothes and evening wear though, and I think there's still that disparity. Uh, I think the, atten- the more and more attention we pay, I think the better the better it will get. I mean, I kind of wonder whether men will fully embrace fashion bags before women ever get pockets. I think that's, that, that's the <laughs> that's question for
0: me likely, lately. Yeah. Or, as you point out in the book, perhaps we'll all go the other direction, right, and just not have pockets or bags at all because technology will reduce our dependence on physical things like keys and phones. Perhaps it will all be embedded in a watch, or maybe even in your eyeball. Do you think there is the possibility of a frictionless, pocketless future?
5: I mean, I toyed with it because I do think it's out there. Futurists and technologists are really hoping that we could you know, abolish all encumbrance. And they've been working on that in this sort of um, science fiction meets fashion synergy of wearables. But I just think that, I don't know, it may happen who who am i to say but i will say that that you know humans are known and inveterate you know collectors of stuff and junk and that we love to have objects and they don't all have to be useful and then i would say show me the digital handkerchief and then i'll then i'll agree that maybe we'll have no more pockets <laughs>
0: That was our discussion with Hannah Carlson. Her new book is Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close.
1: Interesting discussion there. And it wraps up our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today's show. You can head on over to whby.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. And please make sure you rate and review. From studio Two. Here at
0: WHY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Take it away, Atlantis.